Good morning. Are y'all here? All right. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. This is our second to last sermon in the book of Philippians. There you go. Yeah. Susan, it's just me and you this morning. Everyone else is, I don't know what's going on. Philippians chapter 4. So as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, we've been taking it pretty slow, taking just a few verses at a time, going pretty deep. This, this morning's sermon, we took a little bit of a larger chunk of text. There's a lot to cover. I have seven points for you this morning. And if you, if you don't know why seven as a number is significant, you should really be in the Wednesday night Revelation Bible study. But I'll just tell you, seven points means that this is the perfect sermon. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Uh, let me just read the text, and then we will ask God's help in prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, help us to see what's in your word. To understand what's in your word. Help me to faithfully communicate what's in your word. And help us to expectantly fearfully, joyfully receive your word and then to apply it in obedience for the glory of your name and for the good of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, money troubles. Money troubles. You see in our text this morning that the very first word is the word yet, which points us back to the previous verses, verses 10 through 13 where Paul was talking about his needs. And you remember, Paul's in prison. He has certain material needs, but he wants to clarify to the Philippians that although, yes, he does have earthly human material needs, when you have Jesus, all of your needs are really, right, in quotation marks, right? They're not, they're not real needs. But in this morning's text, and basically the very next breath, Paul goes on to say, listen, with that being said, like with, yes, I have Jesus, so I have everything I need. But it was really kind of you guys to send Epaphroditus to to send me supplies to, to help meet some of my material earthly needs. Just right off the bat, I think this way of of kind of trying to thread the needle on the issue of need and caring for people's needs, it's very instructive the way that, that Paul does this, right? Paul can be content in his low circumstances. He can be content when he's lacking, but he can also rejoice when someone sees his need and goes out of, it, out of the way to meet his need, right? So he can celebrate their generosity and he can, in humility, receive their service. So here's a quick, I mean, super quick application point right at the beginning of the sermon. Two application points. Even though none of our needs are ultimate, that doesn't mean that they're not in some sense real. So let people love you and serve you and then rejoice in thanksgiving when they do, right? Do not have this like holier than thou, seemingly Christian, but actually super unchristian thing that says, well, all of my needs are met in Jesus, so you can keep that check. I don't need to pay my rent this month, right? No, if you need help and someone sees it, receive it, By grace, rejoice, thank God, thank the person, and then move on, celebrate. Number two, even though none of our needs are ultimate, it is good for us 
to meet the needs of those who may be lacking in earthly material support. So it should just be a normal, regular rhythm in your life of like seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ in need and like being quick to reach out and to see if you can help. Okay, do not be like the Pharisees when they claimed Corbin, right? When they tried to over-spiritualize money and therefore committed an injustice against their family who was in need. If you see a brother or sister in need, don't go, oh, well, all their, all their needs are met in Jesus. You know, what can my money do to help them? A lot. A lot, actually. So be quick to meet the needs of the saints. Point number two. I'm going to tell you in advance, this is like the longest point of the sermon. It's like 50% of the sermon we're going to have a good time. Point number two, money from Macedonia. Look at verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Okay, so... You've probably noticed um, that when I introduce someone, like a guest preacher or a friend or whoever, I like to tell a story about them, right? And, and the story that I tell about the person I'm introducing is usually me trying to recount some evidence of grace that I've received from that person in our relationship, right? Uh, why do I do that? Why do I do that? I do it because I think that the Christian life is, is meant to be shaped by a consistent pattern of retelling the stories of God's grace. Right? Just read your Bible. The, the, one of the main stories of God's grace right at the beginning, the Exodus, is retold over and over and over and over again until it's fulfilled in Jesus, and we're still kind of retelling it every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We retell these stories of God's grace, right? And that's what Paul's doing in this morning's text, He's, he's recounting the history of, of God's grace in his life from the Philippians back to the Philippians, right? Particularly the grace of their support in his missionary endeavors. So this is such a, uh, this is such a good case study for us that I want to make sure we, we glean every last detail of, of this, this story. So I'm going to walk us through the story of the, of the Philippian partnership with Paul in four subpoints. The Philippian support was, first of all, unique. It was unique. Paul says that when he left Macedonia, the Philippians were the only ones to support him. He says, no church entered into partnership with me except for you. Now, I know we all know what Macedonia is, where it is on the map, but just in case you don't, imagine with me a map. You kind of, I think I'm doing this right if I do it backwards for you guys. Asia is over here, and then over here is Macedonia, and then down here is Corinth okay and so there were three cities that Paul planted a church in on his second missionary journey when he passed through Macedonia and they went from north to south right so they went Philippi Thessalonica Berea Paul says that of the three churches he planted in Macedonia the Philippians were the only church to enter into a partnership with him for his missionary work uh, sub point number two the Philippian support was immediate. You see that in verse 16, right? He says, even in Thessalonica, even in Thessalonica. So Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. What Paul is saying is that the Philippians heard that he was planting a church in the city right next to theirs. And they were like, yo, we got to help this guy. We have to support him in his work. They heard that he was planting a church in the next town over, and they were like, get out the checkbooks. Kids, if you don't know what that is, adults, if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like Venmo, but with paper, right? Get out the checkbook. Additionally, you see in verse 15, Paul says, in the beginning of the gospel, which, which just means like when I came to you, when I planted the church, when I, when I preached and evangelized and you got saved. But he's basically saying, listen, you've been supporting me since day one, since the day I gave you the gospel, you have been returning the favor to me. So let me just give you one quick application point here. All churches should aspire to imitate the example of the Philippians in being quick to establish mission support as part of their church's DNA. It should just be normal for us right off the bat to say, as a church, 
Even if we only have a little, what little we have, we are going to designate it to support the work of the Great Commission, to see Christ's name proclaimed among the nations. Subpoint number three, the Philippian support was consistent. Look at verse 16 again. <clears throat> Paul says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, which is kind of just a, a little, and maybe a more, uh, a translation that might strike our ears better is over and over again, right? You, you met our need over and over again. So, listen, it is not only acceptable, but God-honoring to give one-time gifts to, to missionaries, to parachurch organizations, to, to, to whoever, right? We do that at Sixth Avenue. Missionaries have come through and they've, you know, we've heard their story, we're encouraged by their work, and yet we don't really know them and we don't, we don't really have it worked out in the budget, but we think we, we know them well enough that we want to give them some kind of support so we, we, we'll give them a one-time gift. That's great. But the, the normal pattern of gospel support that I think we should aim for should be kind of modeled after what we see here with the Philippians, right? This, this over and over again, the, the, the level of consistency, right? It's, it's, it's not that hard to write a, a check. I mean, it is, but it, it, you know, if you're greedy, it's hard. But it's not that hard to write a check and just be like, you know, may the Lord be with you, bless, you know, send me your email updates. But it's really hard to say, listen, we love you, and we believe in your ministry, and we're committed to you. This church is committed to you. Come what may, let us know. We're committed to you. You can trust us. But those are the most fruitful relationships, right? Those are the kind of relationships where when a missionary come home, comes home from the field, they don't have to go and visit 15 different churches. They only have to go visit three. They, they can have deeper, longer-lasting, more useful, more godly, more connected relationships. And so this is one of the reasons why at Sixth Avenue we say that we are happy to support fewer gospel works to the glory of God, right? We could write 20 different missionaries, $100 a month, or we can like pick like a really tight shot group and just really focus in and get deep with certain organizations and certain people. So thus far in the life of our church, we've had two significant missions giving, supporting focuses. Number one has been the Nine Marks International Pastors Training where in several times a year they bring in international pastors and put them through an intensive to equip them to go back to their home churches and, and continue shepherding well in the Lord. Our other emphasis is in good churches, which I don't really want to speak about super publicly because it's not a very public ministry. If you're a member, you know what it is. If you're not, you should be a member. <coughs> but it's so cool. It's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, we, we are happy to support fewer gospel works to the glory of God. I know it looks good in churches when you walk in and they got like flags around the meeting hall or they got pictures of like a thousand different missionaries that they support. I know that looks good, but it may not be the healthiest thing to do when it comes to missions giving. Now let me have a, a moment just with some in the congregation who particularly have the gift of giving. As you know, Scripture lays out all these different kinds of gifts that people can have in the church, and we need all the gifts working together for the sake of the body. And one of the gifts that's listed in Scripture is the gift of giving. So here's my exhortation, my encouragement to those with the gift of giving, right? Get narrow. Get focused. Be committed. Stick with the same giving for a long time. I think there's great gospel power in consistency in giving. Now listen, there may be a season where even if you are committed to giving consistently, it may just not be possible. Go back to verse 10. <clears throat> in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what Paul is saying is that uh, the Philippians for a little while actually couldn't give. They couldn't support him in his missionary work. And he says, that's okay. I'm just glad that you're back, you know? So there may be a season in your life where you're not able to give, you're not able to support the way that you want to. But when you can, just come back and aim for that consistency again, right? If you being inconsistent means that you just give up, you're never going to be consistent, right? 
oh, I, I can't get back on a budget. Every time I get on a budget, I fail, says the person who's never going to be able to stick to a budget. Yeah, you fall off the horse, you get back on. Same thing with our giving. There's something else I want you to see here. I want us to consider the way that Paul is talking to the Philippians about their giving, right? What Paul is doing here is he's highlighting layers of grace that he's experienced from the Philippians. He's telling this back to them. He's not just telling other people about this, although he kind of is because we're sitting here reading about it, right? But he's telling the Philippians themselves, and he says it like this. Not only did you support me, but you were the only church to support me. Not only did you support me, but you were quick to support me. Not only did you support me, but you were consistent in your support of me. I hope that there are like text messages and emails and phone conversations like this that are always happening in our church because this is a master class in how to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I mean, just get, here's some examples. Uh, brother, not only when I was struggling with that thing, did you correct me, but you corrected me gently, lovingly, patiently. And consistently. Thank you so much for that. You have no idea how the Lord used that. Or, sister, not only did you reach out to me in my time of need, but you were quick to listen. You just sat with me in my suffering. You read scripture with me and you prayed for me. Thank you so much for that, sister. If you want to encourage your pastors, right, you can, you can tell them, not only have I been discipled well in my local church, but They've held me accountable when I've struggled. They've pursued me. They've counseled me with the word. They've loved me better than I deserved. Kids, listen. Hey, kids, uh, all of you. <laughs> listen, this is uh, something that you can do to your parents. If you think that your mommy and your daddy don't need to be encouraged in their parenting, whoa, you've got another thing coming. If you ever want to make your mommy and your daddy happy, you speak a word of encouragement to them. You can say, Mom... Dad, thank you so much. And then just tell them the good things that they do for you. If you tell your mom or you write them a note or I guess send them a text message, right? If you communicate to your mom and dad how good they've been to you, oh, it's going to make not only their day, their week, they're probably going to float on that for a month, right? Thank you. And, and by the way, I know I'm talking to the children, but we are all, even as adults, still children to someone, right? Listen, if you're an adult and your parents have been kind to you in the Lord and they've been faithful and they've discipled you and, and even if they've been imperfect, which all parents are, you could even send them a text message today. You could call them and say, hey, listen, thank you so much for doing X, Y, and Z. You have no idea how much that means to me. You have no idea how much the Lord has used that in my life. Oh, I bet, I bet they'll just coast on to heaven with that, you know? Okay. Listen, why, why is this so instructive? It, it's so instructive because it, we tend to shout our critiques, right? We shout our critiques, we whisper our encouragements. We will elaborate at length on our frustrations, but then we will just briefly summarize and bullet point our encouragements. So when we see an example of someone going above and beyond, over the top to encourage the saints, we should be quick to imitate them, right? We should linger in our encouragements. All right, <clears throat> moving on. The Philippian support was also abundant. It was abundant. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Listen, <clears throat> I've heard stories of churches saying things like this. We'll keep the pastor poor and God will keep him humble. Same thing with missionaries. We'll keep him poor, and God will keep him humble. This way of thinking is horrendously unbiblical. It's horrendously unbiblical. I just want to walk through some scripture with you, starting in 3 John <clears throat> verse 6. Speaking of missionaries, John writes this, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. How would you send God out on a journey if he needed anything? He doesn't, but they are God's representatives. They are the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't send ambassadors of the king out without their needs being taken care of, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Do you see his reasoning here? You think the pagans are going to give them what they need? No, they are in principle committed to being supported by you, not the pagans. Therefore... 
we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow, have you ever heard someone say that, that we all are very important to the missions process? Some people go down into the well, other people hold the rope. You ever heard that before? Well, it's, it's, it's true, and it comes from verses like this. You may not be called to go to Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Afghanistan. Can you guys tell I've been doing geography stuff at homeschool lately? Right? I got all the stands. Right? You may not be called to go out as missionaries to these places, but you can still be fellow workers with those who do. How? You support them. You take care of them, and you make sure that they are well taken care of. Paul says this in Titus 3, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And if Paul can say that about a lawyer, right, how much, no, thanks Russell, right? <laughs> Zenos was a lawyer and now he and Apollos are missionaries. And Paul says, listen, if you're going to send them out, you've got to send them in a manner worthy of God. You've got to make sure that they're not lacking in anything. It's one thing for a pastor to be willingly bivocational. Or to take a salary that is way too low out of a deep love for his congregation or a deep le- uh, belief in, in his call, his mission. When Amber and I went to the mission field, we did not raise any support. I'm not telling you this to brag. I, I'm pretty sure I've already lost most of my heavenly rewards due to pride. I'm just trying to use myself as an illustration, right? <clears throat> we sold everything we owned. We took our life savings and we got on a plane. I'm not saying everyone should do that. I'm just telling you that's what we did because we felt called to that. Not everyone is called to that. And so if a missionary comes to this church and we're going to support them, you shouldn't go, well, our pastor, when he went, you know, he didn't accept any money from... That's what I was called to. If we're going to support someone, if we're going to be on their team, we're going to make sure that they are well taken care of. A, a pastor should never be like out delivering pizzas on the weekend because the church just doesn't want to like cover his health care costs, you know. It's just incredibly ungodly. We should make sure that those gospel workers we support are lacking in nothing. And I'll tell you why. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Listen, listen to the logic here. Let the elders, and you can replace that with missionaries or full-time gospel workers of any kind. Let the, the pastors, the elders, the missionaries, the evangelists who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, which means uh, it's a euphemism. Make sure that they're well taken care of uh, materially. Especially those, listen to this word, who labor in preaching and teaching. You see the logic there? Here's why you take care of them. Because they're laboring. They're working. They deserve, it's not like they're just living high on the hog, you know, just like, Man, I really got a sweet gig here with this like welfare program from the church. You know, instead of the government giving me my check, the church is going to give me my No, they labor. And if they're not laboring, they should not receive your support, right? And you may be thinking, well, I mean, Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday, Sunday sermon, you know, what is all this labor? Well, if you think that way, you've probably just never been in a church where you've been well-shepherded by your pastors, well-shepherded. Right? It's, it's the time and effort spent wrestling with God in prayer for the flock. It's, it's the counseling sessions. It's the, the arduous hours of study, like Russell reading common, commentaries on the book of Revelation until his eyes literally begin to bleed in his skull. Right? It's the burden of the souls of the sheep that pastors carry with them 24 hours a day. I cannot tell you how many times I've been sitting with Amber and, and she'll be like, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. She's like, you're just thinking about church stuff? And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about church stuff, right? It's the evangelism. It's the discipleship. It's the work of protecting the sheep from the wolves. The list could go on. The point is, if your pastors, if your missionaries, if whoever you support is really laboring, you need to take care of them, right? Galatians 6.6 6 says it like this. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So in summary, if we're going to support gospel workers, we have to pay them their worth. Finally, the Philippian, I told you there was four, there's five, sorry. The fifth subpoint <laughs> snuck that one. The Philippian support was a partnership. A partnership. Back in Philippians 1, 
Paul begins the letter and he says, listen, I thank my God for you and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of you, of mine for you, for making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here's what I want you to see, guys. The relationship between the Philippians and Paul was not cold. It was not transactional. It was not driven by the invisible hand of market forces. This was a gospel partnership. And the gospel partnership goes both ways. Look back at verse 15. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. Hmm. What, what Paul says is that he is not just receiving from the Philippians, but he's also giving back to them. And we've already established that, right? That's what a pastor does. He labors. He, he gives. But, but just think about the context of this letter, right? There's a unity issue in the church at Philippi, a, a pretty serious issue. And when Paul hears about it, he gives to them. He writes them this letter. He says, let me show you how the gospel can fix this issue. This is pretty significant. Paul's in chains. He's going to die soon. He's got his own stuff going on, but he still gives himself to the Philippians in love. And so the Philippians give in kind. Here's a good little way to put it. I think the, the, the Philippians, no, Paul fills up what is lacking in the Philippians' knowledge and application of the gospel. And the Philippians fill up what it, Paul is lacking in his material support, right? Giving and receiving. Guys, I can't move on from this point without commending the members of our church. Uh, listen, when you join Sixth Avenue, we tell you that you are entering into a meaningful gospel partnership and where we expect you, because you're voluntarily joining, right? Nobody, you know, love you. There are a bunch of churches in town. You chose our church for a reason. You're entering into a, a voluntary agreement to give your time, your talent, and your treasure to partner with us in the gospel, right? Guys, I just think this church is so blessed by God and our ability to do that. I've just, I've been a member of a lot of churches. I, I've just never seen, I don't want to say, state this in the superlative that makes it seem like we're better than everyone, even though I kind of feel we are. I know we're not better than everyone. I know that we have our issues. I know that we're a bunch of sinners. But guys, I don't know that I've seen a church this size ever give of themselves to this extent. I mean, it's mind-blowing. When we lost the building, when the Church of God took the building away from us, and we, we were trying to get it back, and we were applying from loan, uh, to loans, we were going to all these banks, and we were like, hey, we need a loan for this much, and we have this much in the bank account. And they were like, how many members do you have? And I was like, 30 and they, they were like, ah, no loan for you. So finally, I, I, I talked to one of the loan officers one day. I said, hey, listen, just like shoot straight with me. Why aren't we getting this loan? We have this much in the account. We, you know, we have this much giving coming in every month. What, what's the issue? And they said, the numbers just don't make sense. The numbers just don't make sense. You've been at this church for like just a few years, and you have this many members, and you're telling us that you have this much money in the bank and that people are giving this much, this much every month? And I was like, yeah, that is what I'm telling you, right? So, guys, uh, this is usually the part of the sermon where, so, like, the beatdown begins, right? And if you don't start giving, I'm gonna, I'm just so happy I don't have to do that. I just, I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. I want to celebrate the evidence of grace in the life of this church that we have received from your generosity. Praise the Lord for that. May it continue. Point number three, money and motives, Money and motives. <clears throat> Look at verse 17. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So here is point number three in a nutshell, okay? Here's me in a nutshell. Help, I'm trapped. Okay, in a nutshell. Here's point three. <laughs> I got to do better. I'm sorry. The heart is so deceitful and wicked, and the world is so full of hucksters and snake oil salesmen, and even in the church, there are so many 
con men and wolves and peddlers of God's word who are only using the ministry for the sake of their personal, private, greedy gain. There is so much of that that pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders of all kinds must be in the habit of saying and really meaning, I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this for myself. Listen, I, I know like, it's, it feels like all the TBN, pink-haired, long-nailed, you know, send in your money and I'll send you a prayer cloth. It seems like that kind of hucksterism has to be new in the church, but it's not. I mean, there are new iterations of it, different weird flavors of it in our context, but this kind of thing was alive and well in the New Testament, and Paul addresses it frequently. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about false teachers who believe that godliness is a means of gain. He tells Titus that there are certain false teachers in the church that need to be silenced because they are teaching for shameful gain, right? So in light of the abundance of these false teachers, Paul kind of stops mid-thought as he's writing the Philippians. Thank you for meeting my needs. I did need the support. But you should, you should know that I am not like those guys. And they know that. But he just still feels like he has to say it out loud. Right? I just feel like I just need to say this again. I have a need, but I want you to know that as I receive this, I'm not in it for the greedy gain. And he says this in some variation in like half of his letter. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this. For we never came with words of flattery, which is what you use to try to get what you want out of someone. As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is my witness, or 2 Corinthians, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, we are commissioned by God to speak in Christ. This is so important that other authors in the New Testament address it as well. Peter addresses it, and he specifically says, as does Paul, that a lack of greed is one of the one of the qualifications for being an elder, a leader of any kind in God's church. So Titus chapter 1, a pastor, an overseer, a shepherd, an elder, all of those are synonymous, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now do you notice it began with as God's steward and then ended with greedy for gain? You can't be greedy if you're a steward for someone else, right? I can't be greedy for my personal gain if I understand that anything I gain is really just me being a steward of God's resources. Peter says it like this, pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly. Now, I know sometimes when I read scripture up here, like, you know, you kind of go in, go out, you catch some of it, you don't, maybe you're not fast enough to flip there in your Bible. Let me just read that last line to you again, because it's really interesting. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Isn't that an interesting pairing? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Why does he contrast greed with eagerness? I mean, if you and I were to sit down and say, okay, what would be a good antonym for greed? We wouldn't say eagerness, right? We would say selflessness or something like that. But he says eagerness. Here's why. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. (laughs) You just read right past that. A night and a day adrift at sea. You ever been out in the middle of the ocean before? Terrifying. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles... Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardships, through many sleepless nights, all the shepherds, all the missionaries, they hear that and they go, that may be the worst one. 
the many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If they were in it only for the money, they would have quit after the first thing there. Right? If you're in it for just the money, 40 lashes, you're, you're, I need to find a different job. This, this path to the, the pot of gold is not the rainbow that I thought it was going to be. Three times I was beaten with rods. Listen, I love you guys. I love you so much. And I, would, I, think, I think I would get beaten with rods for you. But if I, if I wasn't truly eager to love you and serve you in the Lord, I wouldn't. I'd get beaten with rods once. And I'd be like, I got to go. I'll go sell insurance. You know, like I got I to figure something out, right? Like, I don't know what, what else I need to do, but this is not the career path for me, right? It's only eagerness that is born of a truly regenerate heart and a true gospel call that allows you to endure this kind of suffering. These men were eager, not greedy. A greedy missionary gives up when the money runs dry and the trials grow ever more severe. But the eager missionary says, come what may, I have my task, I have my call, I am an ambassador. If I have to die, I'll die, it doesn't matter, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this might be a good time for me to just stop and invite the members of Sixth Avenue to examine the lives of the elders of this church, particularly the staff elders. Do we strike you as men who are greedy or eager? In January, we're going to have our annual budget presentation. Woo! Yeah. Part of which is going to involve a discussion regarding uh, pastor pay. So I'd encourage you to keep this sermon in the back of your mind as uh, Will leads us through that discussion in January. Point number four, money in the bank. Money in the bank. Look at verse 17 again. We're just going to look at the last half of the verse there. Paul says, you know, I don't seek the gift, but I do seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So here we see Paul adding another layer of clarification regarding his motives, right? He says, I'm not greedy for my gain. I'm greedy for your gain. This is incredible. Here's what he means. When he, when he talks about it being credited to their account, right? The word, the word credit there, it, just, that it basically means account. So Paul says, when you give to gospel labors, you're actually, you're actually depositing treasure in your heavenly bank account. We've talked about this before, the, the exchange, right? You go to a different country, you take your American dollars. In order to spend them, you've got to do an exchange. In, in Peru, it was dollars to soles, Right? As Christians, there's a heavenly exchange rate. You put your earthly money in, and it's converted by the Lord into your heavenly treasure. Right? That, that is what he's saying here. So my question for you, members of Sixth Avenue, is do you believe that? Everyone should really just pause and not be quick to answer that question in their own mind. Right? Do I really believe the second half of verse 17, that when I give, it is a fruit that increases in my account. When you give up your Saturday to serve the church, because we still have not gotten this hundred-year-old building where it needs to be, do you believe that your time that you invest there is going to be returned to you in a heavenly reward? When you, when you sign a check to the church because you come under conviction and it's a big check and it's a scary check, but you believe in the cause that you're about to support, right before you go to turn it in, however you turn it in, and part of you says, I don't know, maybe I should drop the amount down. Maybe I should keep it. What, maybe I should whatever. Do you really believe that every last red cent of that money is going to be returned to you in heaven? When you give up your evenings to counsel hurting and needy church members, right? Because I know what you want to do. You just worked a really hard job. 
You fought traffic all the way home. You're really tired. What you want to do is sit down in front of a TV, right, and just kind of veg. But instead, oh, the Joneses, we don't have any Joneses here, do we, right? Okay, <laughs> the, the Joneses are going to be here at 6.30 and we're going to do some premarital counseling or we're going to do some parenting counseling or we're going to do some whatever with them, right? And in that moment, what you feel is like, oh, yay, right? But you know, you know that it's the right thing to do. It's the, it's the loving thing to do. It's the gospel thing to do. And so you do it. But do you? Do you call and cancel? The difference between you doing it and you canceling is the belief that it's going to be credited back to your account. All that energy, that mental, spiritual, emotional energy, it's going to be credited back to your account. Do you believe that when you sacrifice for Jesus, everything you give up will one day be credited back to you with interest? And not earthly interest, not silver or gold, not time or leisure activity, but glory. It's going to be credited back to you with glory. And you might be thinking, well, how do I know if I believe that? It's simple. Just take an inventory of your life. Just start with this simple question. What would my life look like if I really believed this truth? What would that mean for my savings account? What would it mean for my free time? What would it mean for my family time? Family time is this weird, idolatrous thing that we feel like it's the only thing that Jesus would never ask us to give up. No. He's calling us to give it all up. What would this mean for the way I open my home, right? Would everything in my life look like it looks now, or would there be some pretty major disruptive changes? This is, uh, this is scary. This is scary. This is, this is real Christianity, guys. This is, this is it, right? Part of me is like, I can't preach this. I don't do this. That's kind of always what I'm doing, right? I'm preaching above where I live. And I'm calling you to join me in striving for what this, this, this taking up of our cross. But here's the thing. This call to, to take up your cross and to serve Jesus and to sacrifice in all these ways, it is rooted in a promise of reward. A promise that you can take to the bank. That there is nothing that you can give to God that he will not repay you to the nth degree. May he help us to see it. Point number five, money that matters. I want you to see two things here in point number five. The first has to do with justification. In his commentary on today's text, John Piper notes that in an attempt to protect the doctrine of justification by faith alone, some Protestants say that there is nothing we can say or do that is ever acceptable in God's sight. They'll say, only Jesus is acceptable in God's sight, but nothing you do or say is acceptable. None of your prayers, none of your worship, none of your giving is ever acceptable as an act of worship. And sometimes Reformed people jump on this one way too quick. It sounds good, right? I'm just a bag of worms. Right? Total depravity. Except, says Piper, that can't be true when right here in verse 18, Paul says that the gifts given by the Philippians really and truly are an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. That word fragrant, oh, it's loaded with all kinds of Old Testament significance. The, the, the incense in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, going up into the nostrils of God in heaven, right? It's a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. I love, that. I love that he says both. Not just acceptable, not just passes the test, right? You're looking over the goat, no blemishes, no, no defects. It passes the test. No, it's not just acceptable, it's pleasing. We've all given gifts, we've all received gifts before that were acceptable but not pleasing, right? Thank you so much, right? But, oh, you're not pleased by it. But God, God is pleased with this gift. Okay, so now I know the dissonance, I, I feel it. You're saying, but Sean, aren't all of our works polluted? All of your works are like filthy rags? What about that verse? How does that verse fit with... This, well, here's how it works. If your gifts, if your sacrifice 
If your generosity is offered in true faith in the finished work of Christ, it is purified. It's purified, right? Let me show you what I mean. Let's, let's all turn together to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Speaking of the church, in verse 5, Peter says this. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Look at this language, through Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ is the answer. That is how our Always polluted, always impure, never completely holy sacrifices can ever please a perfectly holy God. When they are offered up in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ and his finished work at the cross. Think about it like this. In the same way that when Christ looks at, excuse me, when, when God looks at you, he does not see you but sees the blood of his son Jesus, right? Isn't that the gospel? Right? If you've repented and believed, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Christ, his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, that's been credited to you, that's what he sees. In the same way, when you, measly, pathetic, sinful, lowly, all of those things are true of us, when he sees you offer up your sacrifice, your gift, your service, your word, in faith, in the finished work of Christ, it is credited to you. As righteousness. It is credited to you because of Christ as purity. So, is it possible for us to please God? Yes. Apart from faith? Never. Now, I could hang out on this morning. I really want to, but we're pressed for time. So, there's one more thing I want to show you, and we've got to turn to one more scripture. Not got to, <laughs> get to. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. It's right before the book of Philippians. We're going to be, yeah. So before we read the verse, I want to, I want to prepare you. The, the phrase fragrant offering used in this morning's text, it is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Only twice. It's used here in this morning's text, and it's used in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 2. Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is incredible. This is incredible. But here's what Paul says. If you're like, I don't, I don't see how it's incredible. Oh, you will. Paul is saying that when you give for the sake of the gospel, when you sacrifice, you are doing the same kind of thing that Jesus did when he died to save us on the cross. Now, notice the qualifying language. I'm saying you're doing the same kind of thing. You're not doing the same thing. You can't do what Jesus did. Only Jesus can give up his life as a ransom for many. But you are doing the same kind of thing. You are picturing the sacrifice of Christ. Christ gave up himself. He gave up. He sacrificed himself so that he could serve you and meet your needs. So when you give... In order to meet the needs of others, you are picturing Christ to them. You are an image of the gospel. And this is why God is pleased. Right? It's not just acceptable to him, but it's pleasing to him. This is why it's pleasing to him. Because every time you give sacrificially of your time, talent, and treasure for the sake of the gospel, you are presenting to God a picture of his own son's perfectly completed ministry. And nothing makes God happier than that. Point number six, money and need. Go back to Philippians chapter four, verse nine, uh, excuse me, 19. <clears throat> and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. 
Anyone who sacrifices for the sake of the gospel will have their needs met. But just like he used the word needs in two different ways in the previous verses, verses 10 through 13, he's kind of using the word need. There's a duality here in the way he's using this word need. The prosperity preachers love to manipulate this verse, take advantage of the weak, the ignorant, get them to sign over their life savings, take advantage of them. God promises that if you give money for the sake of the gospel, he'll give it back to you in kind. Is that what Paul's saying here? No, of course not. What Paul is saying here is that God will give us exactly what he knows we need. Everything we need in order to be happy in Jesus. Everything we need for contentment. Everything we need for holiness. Everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, I think I can show you that in this text but it, it would require me doing a lot of exegesis, which, ooh, I know you guys would love it, right? But I think I can show it to you with more clarity, a little bit easier, from a different place in Paul's writing where he does the same thing. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> this is the verse that Pastor Will quoted twice earlier in our service, and for a good reason. Guys, you're doing so good uh, so far. This is kind of a long sermon, and it's not like the classic three-point. We're kind of boop, 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 jumping around a lot. You're doing great. If, you, if I've lost you, if you've you know, gotten distracted, this, like, come back to me, because this is huge. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see that? And that all things is exactly like what we see in Philippians, right? He'll meet every need. It's the same thing, same idea. Then he goes on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So how can you know he's going to give you all things? Christ is interceding to make sure that we get it. He's our heavenly lawyer to make sure that we get everything we need. So what are the things that he's interceding for us to get? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here's Paul's logic. God will give us all things. Everything that we need to stay in the love of Christ. That's what we need. He's going to give us everything we need. And you're thinking, okay, right? That means he's going to give us calm waters, smooth sailing. No. Paul says that giving us everything we need must in some sense In God's sovereignty include tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You may not be facing that. Cancer, job loss, bill troubles, relational strife. And then culminating in, yes, even the fact that we are sheep to be slaughtered, even death might be what we need. It's true, friends, that God gives us everything we need, but according to his definition of need not ours. (laughs) Just this week after Wednesday Bible study, I was standing talking with a member and, uh, and one of his children came up and said, hey dad, I need X, Y, and Z. And the dad was like, you need? And he was like, yeah, dad, I need. And he was like, you need? And he was like, yes, dad, I need. He wasn't getting it, right? And the dad looked at me and I looked at him, right, knowingly, right? Because we know that what, he, what that child thought he needed and what the dad knows he actually needs are two totally different things. And the same thing is true of us, the children of God, in relation to our Heavenly Father. What we think we need and what he knows we need are very often two different things. Tim Keller used to say that if we knew everything that God knows, we would, exa- we would ask him for exactly what he has given us. If we knew everything that God knows, we would ask him for exactly what he has given us. Now, before moving on 
to verse 20 in our final point, there's just one more thing we got to see right here. It's really quick in verse 19. <laughs> I wish it didn't have to be really quick. This, I, I probably should have just carved this out and made it its own sermon. Paul says that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I really regret not making this its own sermon. Goodness gracious. It makes sense, right? You can't give something to someone if you don't have it, right? You always give out of your own supply. So Paul says that God is giving us what we need out of his own supply, which is his glory. So what that means is that we will always receive that which is the most beautiful, most holy, most perfect thing in the universe, and we will never run out of it. There will never be a time where you have a need well, God, when God is going to go, actually, let me run to the ATM. Or, I don't know if I have it this month to help you. I'm so sorry. Or, let me point you to someone who may be able to, right? Or, actually, I'm not the guy who does that. I do this. If you need this, go to that guy. If you need the other thing, come to me. That's not what God does. What you need, ultimately, is God's glory. You need to be enraptured. You've been separated from it because of sin. Right? You've chosen the glories of this fallen world. You've chosen the glories of yourself. You're, you're curved in on yourself, like Augustine says. You've chosen to leave glory behind. He says, I'm going I'm to fix that. My son's going to come. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to give up his glory to bring you into it. And now as a Christian, it's a guarantee. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are destined for glory. In the meantime... As you feel the pinch of earthly need, don't you ever forget this promise. God knows what you need. He has a never-ending supply of what you need. And he has guaranteed to give it to you by the blood of his son, Jesus. Amen. Point number seven, glory. One of the hardest things about preaching about, about pastoring, about parenting, is, is this idea that you can lead the horse to the water, but you cannot make them drink, right? I can, st I can study all week, and I can pray all week, and I can labor over the text, and I can labor over my sermon, and I can get feedback and help, and I can stand up here by God's grace and in my weakness and do my best to lay this out before you, to give you a clear vision of this thing but I can't make you feel. I just can't. I can't make you feel. The most clever illustration, the best story, the most pristine, ordered, layered logic, I just, I can't cause you to feel. But you need to feel. You must feel. Christian worship is not finished until it is felt. It is not enough to merely perceive the glory of God. You have to enjoy it. You have to love it. And that's what Paul does here at the end of Philippians. Right here in verse 20, after he's just kind of talked all about need and glory, he says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He just erupts in praise. He just has to give. He's like, oh, all the needs are going to be met in glory, and I'm going to give you all the glory in return, right? I can't cause you to feel that, which means I can't. If you don't feel it, you're not going to do any of these things, at least not the way that you're supposed to, at least not the way that's pleasing to God. If you write a big check when we're done, that's... did you hear what we read earlier in our call to repentance? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, in his heart, not because you've been guilted in your heart, right? Not reluctantly. Or under compulsion. Why? Because God does not love that kind of sacrifice. It's not acceptable and it's not pleasing to him. That's half the problem in the Old Testament. We're going to go to the temple. Yeah, we're divorcing our wives. And yeah, we're committing injustice. But we're going to go to the temple and we're going to slaughter the thing. And we're going to... God's like, I'm not pleased with that. What is he pleased by? A cheerful giver. Do you understand that that's what the nations need? That's, that's what sinners who are lost and dying and going to hell need? The unreached peoples of the world, that's what they need. They don't need somebody who feels guilty and then they get on a plane to go to the jungle to preach the gospel out of guilt. They need someone who has a vision for the glory of Christ, the eternal glory of Christ to go, yes, I see it and I'm going to give that glory back and I'm going. 
In a minute, we're going to sing one of my favorite songs. I think Luke introduced this to us. May the people praise you, right? You have called us out of darkest night into your glorious light that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. How can you sing it unless you've seen it, really seen it? May our every breath retell the grace. Isn't that what Paul's doing here? Retelling the grace that broke into our strife with boundless love and deepest joy, with endless life. So may the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. Let your blessings come, and they will come, that we may praise, may praise the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not had their eyes open to this truth, we pray that you will Open them now, give them a vision for the glory, and let us glorify your name by responding appropriately, not just in this song, but with every aspect of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.